Welcome to Algie's Investment Podcast, and this episode is going to focus on macroeconomics. My guest today is Roger Brutal, one of the country's best-known economists. Back in 1996, he was actually castigated by all sorts of people for thinking that inflation was no longer going to be a problem, since which time interest rates have fallen to almost zero. And now today, he's turned the tables. He thinks inflation is coming back, and it's going to be stickier than a lot of people anticipate. Roger, thank you very much for joining us today. It's really lovely to see you. You're welcome. Can I start off uh, with uh, a very uh, topical question, which is that of UK interest rates. Mm. In 1990, Mm. you were almost ridiculed um, (laughs) for forecasting the end of inflation. Mm. And in fact, in 1996, you then wrote your best-selling book, Mm. um, The Death of Inflation. Mm. Um, Warren Buffett last year said he saw inflation everywhere. What is the inflation outlook today? Mm. I don't at the moment see a major change from where we are currently of the same magnitude as the change that you mentioned that I correctly foresaw in the early 1990s. That's to say, I don't see a collapse into very, very low rates of inflation or deflation, and nor do I see us moving back to something like the 1970s all over again. I suspect that inflation is going to be quite difficult to get down, it's going to be, I think, um, yeah, it's going to be difficult to budge. And this is a sense in which I take issue with some valuations in the market and also some of the uh, pronouncements of the current generation of policymakers, who I think have fallen for the idea that they can comfortably get inflation down. And I don't think you can comfortably get it down, even at the best of times. And I think the overall environment has in many ways turned against it. I mean, the breakdown of the international order, the slowing, if not the actual reversal yet of globalisation. These things are working in the opposite direction. So I think policymakers are going to have to struggle to get inflation down. I'd like to ask you a question about wage inflation, Mm. because we've seen product price inflation, consumer Mm. price inflation. Mm. Do you think wage inflation in the UK is, is going to be what makes inflation stickier for longer? Yes, but, um, I think one must try to avoid falling into a sort of an accountancy trap about this. I mean, it's almost bound to be true if inflation is high and sticky that wage inflation is going to be there as one of the leading, apparently one of the leading agents because, of course, it accounts for a huge proportion of, of the cost base. Um, what I think is striking at the, about the current situation and what makes the current situation so dangerous is the fall in the UK's terms of trade. In fact, not just the UK, but most of the Western world have suffered a hit to their terms of trade because of the rise in energy prices and uh, also other various other costs. And that has imposed a fall in living standards across a broad range of countries, and it's very strong and marked in the UK. Mm. Um, and I was, yeah, I was very surprised by the complacency of the UK authorities about this. They seem to think that people would just sort of sit back and accept all this. And of course they haven't. They've pushed for higher wages to try to compensate for the hit to their standard of living. Now, individual groups of workers may be able to to succeed, but collectively they can't succeed because that just increases costs, which then pushes up price inflation still more. So that's the nub of the problem. We saw it in the 1970s twice, actually. And I think we're living through that again. So I am worried about wages, yes. And we're not, I think, going to be able to overcome this problem until headline inflation is a lot lower. So the pressure for 
Nominal wage increases eases back a bit, but also the labour market's simply too tight. I think we're going to have to see an easing of the labour market before we see the wage problem gradually melting away. Do you think we're ever going to witness a UK government that spends less than it receives in taxes? Mm -hmm. Uh, I wouldn't rule it out. Gosh, it takes enormous self-discipline to do that because if the public finances are that healthy, then every politician of whatever stripe they are is going to want to spend that either on increased government spending or on tax cuts. Um, That would be a shame because if you said to me, what would be a way of trying to keep the exchange rate sustainably lower, I don't necessarily mean lower than it is today, but lower than it otherwise would be, um, I would say, well, probably fiscal policy. It's a matter of running Mm. very tight fiscal policy which enables you then to run a monetary policy which would be consistent with the exchange rate remaining competitive. And some countries have done that, of course. But in a democracy like ours, it's very, very difficult to do. Actually, one thing that would point in that direction is the very high level of government debt, which is not a good thing at all, the debt ratio being somewhere around about 100% of GDP. And it's so high and there's rightly a fair amount of anxiety about that, that that might be something that persuade governments over the next 10 years or so to keep the fiscal policy stance extremely tight. Certainly, I I would favour that. I think the Bank of England, I think it owns half the gilts it's issued. Mm. Um, It got its independence in 1997. Mm. Do you think that the the, the policy of seeking a sort of, um, or a policy of, of quantitative easing uh, printing money um, since the financial crisis has uh, meant that it's lost its credibility as an institution, as an independent institution, or did it have no other option? I think it has lost quite a bit of credibility. Um, I don't think it's so much lost reputation for being independent. I mean, I could be wrong about that. Um, not many people in the markets or I think in the general public believe it's done what it's done because the government's told it to. I think it's rather it's done what it's done because it is just mistaken. Mm. Uh, of course, it hasn't been alone in that regard. There's been groupthink, not only at the Bank of England, I think, but between the central banks. I think quantitative easing was the right sort of policy to follow in the depths of the crisis. The fault of the bank, and not only this bank, but other central banks, was to carry on with it for too long and not to realise how potentially dangerous that was. But the same is true of interest rates, and I'm more concerned about interest rates, actually, than I have been about quantitative easing, whose effects, I think, can easily be overdone. But the interest rate policy, uh, to have rates at zero, of course, in some cases, some countries, are negative for quite a while. This was bound to bring all sorts of distortions in the market, and we're now living through some of those. When we're talking about groupthink between the the Federal Reserve, the ECB, Mm. and the Bank of England, how close are we now to interest rates peaking? How much of the work is now done? Or is, is it just too early to tell? Well, it's certainly too early to tell, but that's, of course, a cop-out answer. You won't it be is, satisfied with that. You want me to... <laughs> I want to know what colours the most. Um, well, I have thought all along... Um, let me answer it, first of all, not precisely, but in, in regard to something qualitative, which I think is important. And it goes back to what I said earlier on. Too many people in the markets and in the central banks believe in comfortable disinflation. They think it's going to happen easily. 
And I don't think it is. So I think one's got to look for discomfort. And when there's some discomfort, then I'll begin to think that maybe they've done enough. Now, I would judge that there isn't enough discomfort at the moment. Uh, and it partly ties up with what you were saying earlier on about the lags in the effects of higher interest rates. Mm. Um, I've said for quite some while that I think UK interest rates would need to go to 5%. We're four and a half now. I wouldn't be surprised if they went higher than 5%. Uh, but I'm quite clear in my mind that what has to happen is it has to be high enough to inflict real pain, and that pain must come through to the labour market, and then we will start to see inflation come down noticeably. And on the inflation point, crucial to distinguish between the headline inflation rate and the underlying rate or core rate, because headline inflation is going to plummet. Yes, of course. Uh, But that won't tell us very much. It won't. Are there any long-term trends that you can identify looking out over the next 30 years that you think are in existence or at the early stages of being germinated? The investment world over the last, not just the investment world, the economic world over the last several years has become very pessimistic about our economic future. Um, Productivity growth figures very low, not just here, but generally. And a lot of people believing that, if you like, economic growth has come to an end. The industrial revolutions are one-off and it's more of a spent force. And now we can look forward to something almost medieval where things don't change very much. Uh, putting it simply, I think that view is wrong. Uh, it's betting against human ingenuity and against the thrust of history for the last couple of hundred years. So I think what we're going to see, and I can't tell exactly when it is, at some point in the next few years, is a resurgence of economic growth. And I think Artificial intelligence is going to be a game changer. Uh, And the emergence of all sorts of new industries and activities, uh, and the result of which some industries are already there and they're going to reap the benefit. Others will appear as if from nowhere. As part of all that, I am of of the view that um, people will move towards a working week and a working year, which will be less intensive. Um, Keynes forecast this a long time ago, and I think he was right, uh, that we will move towards much reduced working hours, which then, of course, gives rise to the question, well, what do we do with all that time? And then that feeds into economics and investment opportunities. I think there's going to be a massive expansion of leisure activities. I remember once being told um, by a strategist that whilst the US and China continued to dance the tango like Torval and Dean, everything would be okay. But when the music stops, you know, watch out. And the music has most certainly stopped. So my question is, who needs who more? I think they both need each other to a very considerable extent. But I think I would say that China probably needs the US more than the other way around. Okay, It's still the case that the US is, for all the talk of decline, immensely powerful potentially quite self-sufficient in a way that few, if any, countries in the world are. The looming change affecting this relationship, and still I think a lot of people haven't quite grasped the significance of this, is demographic. Already the Chinese population is falling. It's no longer the largest population in the world. India's got that slot now already. The consequences of this are going to be extraordinary. My own view is that the Chinese economy will never exceed the size of the American, partly because of demographics, largely because of demographics. Um, And in this context, it would be true anyway, but in this context, 
I think the last thing that Chinese leadership can afford is some real weakening in the world trading system, or even worse than that, being shut out of large parts of the world trading system. So I think it's very much in the interest of the Chinese leadership to keep the system going. And that is one reason, I think, why they've been probably some sort of restraining influence on Putin's Russia. And, and so you mentioned it earlier, you just touched on it earlier on. Has, has globalisation then paused or has it peaked? Well, I think it's probably paused, and it's well, it's paused in a particular way. Um, it's quite clear now that the West has had a wake-up call, not just America, not just governments, but businesses as well, and this is caused partly by COVID. That's to say we've realised that security of supply cannot be taken for granted. Mm. We had that phase earlier on where people just seemed to think that the stuff was going to be endlessly available. You didn't even think about it. And we now know that that's not the case. And it's quite clear that there's some sort of, well, let's call it competitive rivalry between America and China. It may grow into a serious version of the Cold War. And because of that, both governments and countries, and uh, governments and companies are going to look to their supply chains and as far as they reasonably can, shut China out. But within each camp, within the American-led camp, for instance, I don't see a collapse of globalisation. It could be the opposite. So let's take Britain, for instance, which a few years ago was trying to ride both horses, that's to say trying to be both very close to China and close to America, which I thought was never on the cards. We've learned our lesson on that. And now, of course, we're going to be in the American camp. And do I think that links between Britain and America are going to diminish? No, I don't. In fact, if anything, the opposite. We're going to struggle to get a free trade deal with America under the current president. But if we were to get a Republican president, for instance, I think there's a very good chance we would get a free trade deal with America. Uh, And so that aspect of globalization, and that would lead on to other sorts of deals as well, by the way, around the world, that aspect of globalization, I think, can deepen even at the same time that the other sort of globalization, let's say links between the West and Britain and in this instance, and China and other countries in the Chinese ambit, those are going into the deep freeze. I read that book by Bill Gates about how to solve the the, the, the climate change disaster. Um, and uh, he's very much in favour of nuclear power mm. as an option of producing a, a, a supply of, of, of endless cheap electricity, which mm. emerging countries you know, deserve to have mm. in the same way as we had coal for the Industrial Revolution. Um, but in Europe, of course, now we've, had this, we've got this conflict going on with, with, with Russia. Is, is cheap gas now going to be a, a thing of the past? And therefore, if they don't go down the, the nuclear route in Europe, which Germany up until now hasn't wanted to do, is that going to put them at a massive disadvantage to the, to, to the US uh, in terms of the ability to produce, produce goods that are at a cost which is competitive? Well, I think the short answer is probably yes. Mm-hmm. I agree with you about nuclear. I haven't read the Gates book, but it does seem to me to be the only technology we have available at the moment which could produce cheap energy on a sufficient scale. There are, of course, risks and dangers to it, which is one of the reasons why the Germans and others turned aside from it. But it does seem to me to offer a lot. On your point about competitiveness, you're right, um, but it seems to me to be not as big a point as perhaps it used to be because 
goods as a proportion of what we produce and what we want to consume are still falling in significance. It's services that increasingly we want. And here I come back to my point about AI. What I think is much more important for our future prosperity is that we develop and regulate intelligently and we don't over-regulate or smother the development of artificial intelligence. That's going to be so important for our prosperity. And if I have a big worry about this, it is that Europe um, as a whole will over-regulate and smother. Meanwhile, China and the countries associated with it will let everything hang out. And the result will be that they will gain enormously in productivity as a result. What is therefore the, the hardest element you've found over the years to convey to people who work for you? To something that you've found makes a difference to being very good at your job or, or, or not very good at your job. And it's, it's not just people who work for you. It may be for governments mm. who've listened to you or haven't listened to you because you've spent quite a lot of time trying to educate government departments yeah. um, with varying degrees of success. They probably do say yes, but they don't listen. <laughs> um, what's, what is the hardest thing to get across? Uh, I think I would say two things. First of all, the extent to which we really don't know. Uh, a lot of young economists straight out of university will think there is an answer, the answer, to a particular issue, and usually there isn't. Um, they've got to be very modest about this, um, particularly with regard to forecasting. Um, and the second ties up with what I was saying earlier on about history. It's very striking that in the run-up to the global financial crisis 2007-9, the banks were stuffed full of so-called risk assessment officers who knew nothing about the world before about 1970. Uh, and a lot of um, the models they were using were based on data that was just a couple of decades old. Now, in my well, slightly, I suppose, being a bit fanciful, I like to go back at least a thousand years uh, if I can get hold of the data. But certainly when I'm looking at modern macro phenomena, I like to go back to the 19th century at least because the 20th century is marred by three very major things. First of all, the two world wars, and secondly, of course, by the interwar depression. And then after the Second World War, you've got that long period of comparative stability. So if all you do is go back to 1970, you've missed an awful lot out. Um, and, yeah, I'd like to go back to the 19th century if I can. And in some cases, financial things, it's worth going back a bit, a bit earlier. So where, where is gold for you as, a, as an investment? I mean, is it a barbaric relic? Or, uh, or, 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 or is it a, has it got an intrinsic value which you're attracted to? I mean, I, I've always seen you as, as an optimist, not a pessimist. So uh, I'm fascinated by what you might think of gold. Well, first of all, I'm no expert on it, and that will tell you something, that, that itself. I suppose I'm a bit, I'm a bit too Keynesian in most things, I suppose, but I do rather subscribe to Keynes, Keynes' view that it's that um, barbarous relic. Um, I don't like it as an investment for my, myself, but this is not from the point of view of any uh, expertise that I might have in the field. On the contrary. And, of course, there are phases of financial collapse when gold is one of the few things you might be able to have which will give you some protection. But I find it so difficult to value. This is what I don't like about it. Of course, it doesn't have a yield. 
And being an old gilt man myself, I like things that have got yields. Um, it's very, very difficult to value gold and on the basis of what. Um, so, I mean, instinctively, I don't like it. But I suppose it makes sense to have some in a balanced portfolio as a sort of a rainy day asset. But I, I do like my investments to have an income. So, Roger, I can't let you go today without asking you one question about property. Mm. Um, we've always been known as a nation of shopkeepers, <laughs> um, but also we've always loved to own our own properties. Mm. Um, and Maggie Thatcher was very encouraging of that uh, in the 1980s. Um, where do you stand on on property now for somebody who is seeking to get on that property ladder? Do you think the timing is just very poor and that it's a, it's a liability mm. and, and not an asset? Mm. Or is it just an essential thing that you have to bite the bullet if you can afford it mm. and, and just go ahead and purchase? Well, I've been in the middle of thinking about this recently because I have both a son and a daughter in their 20s and I've been advising them on this and providing some funding. Uh, I do think that the UK property market looks overvalued. It's stretched. I'd be surprised if it registered very good real returns over the next few years. Having said that, there are terrific advantages to owning your own property in this country. In most countries, uh, tax advantages, absence of capital gains tax, you're not taxed on the implicit income of uh, enjoying the property that you're in. I think there are also psychic advantages of owning your own property, all sorts of reasons why it's a good thing to own. Having said that, you use the very interesting word ladder. Of course, there's a a popular game called Snakes and Ladders. And with regard to property, everyone assumes that there are only ladders. I do wonder whether in the long term there could be snakes. Um, now, there are two potential long-term dangers, it seems to me. One is that finally, finally, governments get their act together and we have a sufficient programme of new building with a specific objective of making property more affordable, a.k.a having lower real house prices. They won't say that, of course, but that will be the implication of it. I think it's going to be difficult for that to happen. Mm -hmm. The second issue is demographic. We touched on this earlier on. In lots of countries, the population is already falling. It's set to fall a long way. In China, this is happening in Germany, in Italy, in Spain. Now, unless these countries undergo significant, huge waves of immigration, the population is going to fall. If that happens... I don't think the outlook is very good for residential house prices. There's going to be a surplus of property. I think the UK is different. Oh, I didn't use the UK in that list of countries that are undergoing falling population. Our birth rate is quite low, but at the moment we have a high rate of net immigration and our population is still rising quite rapidly, actually. So that should underpin the UK scene for as long as that rate of net immigration continues, because it may not continue. But there are certainly places in the world where I think that investment in residential property would not be a good idea. What advice have you got for any budding economists, mm. strategists or policy makers that are, you know, that are going to be the future for this country? Well, I'm going to sound like a, a stuck record now. I would say read history, lots of it, certainly economic history. And if I had my time again, I would spend much of it reading economic history, which I didn't read at university, actually. I picked up along the way afterwards. But not just economic history, also social 
and political history and ask yourself the question, what did those people believe then and how did they prove to be wrong? How did things develop? And then move to the current and be aware of what the current consensus is. And then ask yourself the question, how might they prove to be wrong in the future? Your primary role has always been to be an economist, but I'm going to ask you an investment question now. Where would you invest or how would you invest? Uh, what asset classes do you, do you favour most? If you're a 20-something-year-old person looking to, to ensure that they get ahead of inflation, generate some real returns mm. for the long term, where would you put your money? Gosh, what a question. Um, I had this conversation with my children quite a lot, actually. And the first thing I say to them is be very wary of easy returns. One of the books I wrote was entitled Money for Nothing. And the investment world, as you know, is full of um, some people who, how can I put it, aren't as in command of their subject as they ought to be. I'm being kind. Uh, And they're promising something for nothing. It's very easy to fall prey for those. So you've got to be, I think, to step back, to be modest. And this echoes what you said some time ago. Be patient. Be prepared to take the long view. Having said all that, I think at the moment, I could be hopelessly wrong, but I don't find any of the markets major categories particularly attractive. I would want to be quite liquid at the moment, actually. Um, Having said all that, I'm reasonably optimistic about UK equities, which look to me to be not unfairly valued. I still don't like bonds, um, even though the yields are a long way higher than they were a couple of years ago. It seems to me they're not doing justice to the extent of the inflationary danger that's still there and the extent to which interest rates might go up. Property we've talked about, I think you should have some to live in. I'm not sure I'd want to uh, build up a massive portfolio of it for investment purposes. Uh, be, be wary, be cautious, uh, and don't expect too much, and be patient. That's a fabulous answer. Roger, thank you very much. Welcome. All content on the Algies Investment Podcast is for your general information and use only, and is not intended to address your particular requirements. In particular, the content does not constitute any form of advice, recommendation, representation, endorsement or arrangement, and is not intended to be relied upon by users in making or refraining from making any specific investment or other decisions. Guests and presenters may have positions in any of the investments discussed.